Welcome back to The Brand is Female. I'm your host, Ava Hartling. This week on September 28th is International Safe Abortion Day, a global day of action dedicated to raising awareness about the importance of safe and legal abortion care and access to it. In Canada, one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime, and abortion is one of the most common healthcare needs in our country. While most women in Canada support the right to choose and access abortion, there still exists knowledge gaps on the subject. For example, six in every 10 Canadian women can't make the difference between medication abortion and the Plan B pill. This data was obtained through a national online Ipsos survey commissioned by Line Pharma International to understand the current knowledge of abortion methods, preferences, and availabilities of options in our country. The results underscore the importance of destigmatizing conversations about abortion once and for all. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. To acknowledge the importance of International Safe Abortion Day, Line Pharma International invited me to talk with two experts on the subject. I am joined today by Dr. Konya Troughton, a clinical professor in the Department of Family Practice at UBC and a clinical associate at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, as well as Rachel Kearns, a performer, writer, and creator of Abortion, a popular podcast on abortion in Canada. We aim to shed some light on the role and benefits of reproductive and sexual education for women and a path to lifting stigma surrounding abortion and reproductive rights in our country, ensuring that all can access safe abortion care. Here is our conversation. Rachel, Dr. Troughton, it's a pleasure having you on the Brandy's Female Podcast today. Thank you so much for making time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, totally. Very excited to have this conversation, especially as this week uh, takes place, International Safe Abortion Week. So this topic is very timely, and I know it's a topic that's very important to both of you. Um, so I want to I want to dive right in, and I'll I'll start with a question for you, Dr. Trout. And when did you become interested in sexual and reproductive health care? And you know what part of your uh, career in, in medicine, did it, uh, involve, was this something that, you know, you had an interest in and then that led you to wanting to pursue studies in medicine or was it once you were in the field that you discovered that was the area you were going to focus on? Yeah. Once I was in medicine, um, I really delved into a lot of the social justice aspects of medicine. I was very excited about that opportunity to both make change on a kind of a community level and a global level. And so I sought out different opportunities. And in third year of medicine, uh, that is when the Supreme Court decision was rendered, allowing patients to have the decision to have an abortion. It was just a private decision between a doctor and the, and the patient themselves. So that was a salient moment to me in 1988. And Henry Morgenthaler um, came to Queen's University where I was attending and gave a speech um, when he found out the verdict of the Supreme Court. And that was a quite turning point, quite a big turning point for me because I realized that you could be a family physician, you could be an activist, you could make change, and you could make a difference in people's lives, not just by what you did day to day, but what you did in a systemic way. Mm, and that's when it became clear for you that you were going to pursue that path. Mm-hmm. 
Rachel, you have your own history with abortion. You've created a podcast on that topic called Abortion. Uh, the first season aired, and I believe you're working on a second season, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you, you know, want to share your story in such a public way uh, while also advocating for reproductive rights? Yeah, there were so many um, components of my experience of abortion that surprised me, um, starting from the very first initiating incident, which was getting pregnant with an IUD. I didn't take a pregnancy test for 10 days, even though I was fairly like I tracked my period with an app. But I just had so much faith in an IUD that even though my body was showing me all these other signs of pregnancy, I didn't like connect the dots still. And it really made me like stop and be like, whoa, I need to up my game on my body literacy. Um, And then from there, I had a disappointing conversation with my GP who didn't really um, help me navigate how to access abortion. I also realized, whoa, I've always identified as pro-choice and I'm so proud that, um, you know, Canada has decriminalized abortion, which is different from legalized abortion. And yet I have no idea how to get one. And I'm, Mm. you know, I'm university educated, like progressive parents. I'm kind of like right in the zone of somebody who should have this information at my fingertips. And I was very reliant on Google. Mm. And then from there, other things like I had to wait two weeks, which, you know, is just the reality. But also as a freelance gig economy worker, I was like, I don't have any paid sick days. You know, I, what if I already had children who I also had to care for? Um, And then I learned about my mom's abortions for the first time. She had one illegal one and one um, prior to decriminalization that was much more complicated than my experience to access. So, and honestly, I could keep on going. It was an event that in and of itself was there was a lot to unpack. And it also was um, an experience that I was just so acutely aware of how, even though in some ways my abortion was not a big deal, I didn't intend to get pregnant. Um, And so in that, in that instance, it was a fairly easy choice doing air quotes around that. And Mm -hmm. yet it was so clearly a decision that impacted literally every element of my identity and my Mm -hmm. life. So Mm -hmm. There was a lot to, <laughs> there was a lot to explore. And um, I do still think we've come a long way. I think we're kind of currently in a renaissance of talking about um, abortion and other, other components of particularly um, female bodies and reproductive health. But mm-hmm. there's still a lot of stuff that we're kind of just beginning to um, be more transparent about and also connect the dots to how it impacts other areas of Mm. our life. So that's what interested and compelled me to move into that space. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think your experience and what you're describing, a a lot of women go through this, right? And um, even though abortion is legal in Canada, it's not always obvious. The the road to getting there uh, is not always an easy one. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of that, what would you say are the main obstacles or the main struggles that women and people with uteruses face regarding abortion and abortion care today? And I would add, even getting information about um, just abortion in general um, and, and, and how to get one, maybe Dr. Trouden first, and then we'll come back to you. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it depends a little bit where you are in the country in terms of getting direct information from a healthcare provider. Um, Google is getting better, but there's a lot of confusing websites on uh, that when you search abortion mm-hmm. that might lead you to U.S. sites, which you don't realize are U.S. sites indicating that there are restrictions in that state or in that jurisdiction. And I think um, Canadian people get confused sometimes about what, what is possible in Canada. Um, what is covered and what is not covered. So there's a confusion there just on Google searching. Um, there are some non-credible sites that are put up by um, uh, pregnancy access centers, which give right. incorrect information and false information about the safety of abortion. Abortion is very, very safe. It does not imp- impact a person's ability to have a pregnancy subsequently. In fact, it's much, much safer than having a child. And that kind of information is so important for people to hear. Um, And yet it's clouded by some of the anti-choice websites. So website searching is the tool that most people turn to first, for sure. Um, And then I Mm -hmm. think, unfortunately, the healthcare um, community has um, somewhat um, different uh, education efforts. People are not educated all the same way um, regarding abortion. It's not a required part of medical training or obstetrics and gynecology training. So we cannot assume that even an OBGYN knows how to do an abortion, knows what the safe options are, and knows how to provide it. And the same with family physicians and nurse practitioners. Not all know. Some are very knowledgeable and very caring and very supportive, and other people just don't know. Um, and, And so you're left with a little bit of a a gap of information where there are gaps on the internet, gaps in person, um, and, mm. and uh, that's unfortunate. Rachel, anything to add? One thing that I sometimes like to add in terms of the um, barrier conversation is while we we do need to continue to improve access to abortion, and particularly for people who don't live in an urban setting, mm-hmm. um, and as Dr. Troughton just mentioned, like, I'm just a civilian, but it seems like we do really need to up our game in terms of how we're um, training our providers across fields so that we have competent and confident um, providers who are able to address the population's needs. Uh, I do just want to shout out, though, like, from my understanding, access, even though we have a ways to go, has improved so significantly mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. past decade. Mm-hmm. And that's largely thanks to people like Dr. Troughton and, uh, you know, healthcare providers working within a social justice uh, capacity mm-hmm. to train people, to open up clinics. I'm thinking about the mm-hmm. Maritimes, to open up self-referral lines. Um, the introduction of the abortion pill in Canada coming officially on the market in 2017 has, like, exponentially improved access. Mm-hmm. So while... It's still not easy for everyone to immediately access abortion if they need it. We're not quite unified in how immediately we can, you know, choose our reproductive rights and autonomy. We also have come a long way because there's amazing people on the ground doing incredible work and they will continue to do so. Um, so yeah, I just like, I just like adding that silver lining into the access, uh, conversation. And I think it's important to recognize, uh, you know, how far we've come, especially considering what's happening just out of our border. Mm-hmm. Um, something that comes up for me, uh, what about sex ed? Is this, and it's been a while since I've taken a sex ed class. What's being taught? Is abortion even a topic that is, you know, uh, that is included in, in sex ed for, for youth today? 
Well, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. Yeah. It's it's not a part of my practice that I yeah. um, do do sex ed mm-hmm. classes. Um, but but I certainly notice from Planned Parenthood or um, the sexual health clinics. You know, they are getting more and more explicit about what information is available and what to do. You know, if your contraception mm-hmm. fails. So there is more and more awareness. People are transparently talking about it. And, you know, I would agree that people, um, because of that, are probably accessing abortion much more quickly than we did when I first started practice. I mean, I've been in practice for just over 30 years. And, you know, when I first started doing abortions, we would see people come at like eight, nine, 10 weeks pregnant. And now we're seeing Mm -hmm. people come, they've missed their period by three, four, five days, and they are in, Mm -hmm. you know, they're phoning, they are on the phone line, they are doing those home pregnancy tests, which are in Canada are very Mm -hmm. effective, and um, very high quality tests. And so people are identifying Mm -hmm. what's going on right away. They're not waiting for two, three missed periods, um, like they used to, not at all. That's really interesting. And I think there's more conversations just around periods in general, and around Mm -hmm. the female body. And which, you know, we, we didn't have as, as much back in the day. So it feels like women, and you were, you were talking about that, Rachel, your own experience, uh, you know, you trusted the IUD, didn't realize you were pregnant. I think now we're a little bit more attuned, or at least there's more conversations making us aware and, and understand how cycles work a little bit better. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's fact, it's fascinating these days, because it used to be that you would say, when was your last period? And people would think, uh, scratch their head and not be sure and try and pull out some sort of paper calendar. And now people just go straight to their phones. Let me check my period out. I know exactly when that is. And that has been actually fantastic. It has been Mm -hmm. really, really helpful for people to know um, that there's something a little bit amiss, and um, they attend to it right away. So I think that that's been an incredible uh, jump in people's ability to track what's going on with their body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and when it comes to prevention, we know that you know there's a few factors that uh, that are at play. We know uh, you know somebody's environment or, or upbringing, also our current life circumstances have an impact when we're trying to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Can you elaborate on that? And, you know, what what does that look like in, in 2023? Mm. Maybe uh, Dr. Trotten first. Sure. Um, yeah, um, it's interesting because um, during one's reproductive life, you're going to use different things at different times, depending on what are, what is the issue and what are the risks. You know, certainly when one is dating and not in a stable relationship, you may, many, many people use the pill plus condom or they use an IUD plus condom, like they used to double up on methods. And at that time of your life, also a lot of things are changing. You know, you might have a part-time job, you might be at school, you, your, your day-to-day life is not as routine. You know, people in stable relationships um, where their life is a bit more measured often realize, okay, let's let's plan when we want to have a pregnancy or if we want to have a pregnancy, and they will use a longer term method like an IUD or an implant. Um, so you you'll find that there's a little bit of variation there, and even people who have completed their family or decided they never want kids often go not for a vasectomy or a tubal ligation, but they will go for an IUD because it is as effective, but it has that secondary benefit of reducing your period. So they're looking mm-hmm. for other things out of their contraception. Um, so, you know, there are there are a number of measures that people put in place. I think what's been really helpful is having the morning after pill or the plan B available over the counter. And I think that's been a helpful measure. However, you know, there is a little bit of confusion with what is it and when should it be used? And certainly yeah. it needs to be used before ovulation because it prevents ovulation. 
But mm. the reality is that most people, um, their their libido, their sexual drive is higher when they're ovulating. So, you know, for many people that I see um, coming for t- me to terminate a pregnancy, they are very upset to find they've used the morning after pill, they've used plan B, and they realize it doesn't work. Well, it probably doesn't work mm. overall about 60, 60 to 70% because they, they're using it, you know, three days after they've ovulated when they just had sex right. and that's it's a few days too late. And that's, that's really frustrating people. And people are not aware that mm. they can use a copper IUD, copper IUD within six, within five to seven days of um, unprotected sex. And that will be 99% effective, but you know, it's hard for people to get to know that. And it's hard for people to get access to an IUD within, within seven days of unprotected sex. So that's an mm-hmm. opportunity um, that is is sometimes missed. So you know there there are a number of wider range of options. People are aware that they use news need different things at different times in their life. And this backup method is yeah, it's it's there, but it's not as effective as people think. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's interesting because you, I just learned something about Plan B. I I didn't know about the timing, um, which crucial. is really interesting. And I, yeah, and I feel like that's that's an area where we need to educate uh, people a little bit better. Um, Rachel, anything to add to what Dr. Trotten said? I'll just add, like, I've now spoken to a lot of people about their experiences of of abortion. So just, you know, beyond the specificities of my own one experience with it. And I will say that, you know, it's pretty amazing that BC has become the first province to provide publicly funded contraception. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people who shared their abortion stories with me had abortions, usually when they were younger, but you know, they were making choices between paying for their rent and groceries or paying for their birth control pills. Exactly. So, um, you know, affordable, preferably free contraception, I think is a huge preventative measure. And, you know, we know that Canada is the only country with universal health care that doesn't provide pharmacare in any capacity. So that's some progress that I would like to see in like, mm-hmm. hopefully the next decade. Um, and I'll also just say, like, I think, as you mentioned previously as well, like comprehensive sexuality education, I think we have a, a long way to go in that department. Uh, it's really dependent on your teacher and where you live. Um, and I think most people still experience kind of like a fear-based, shame-based, like just don't get an STI and don't get pregnant, mm-hmm. not actually talking about like, well, what happens if those things happen? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about pleasure and let's talk about consent and like mm-hmm. all of the just human aspects of having a body and, you know, having a sexuality. Um, And then the third final thing, I think it's just important to bring into the context of um, people's, the complexities of people's lives is that Mm -hmm. even when people are in relationships with people they love, they're not always having consensual sex. Mm -hmm. And that's just another social reality that we Mm -hmm. need to Uh, be aware of. And, you know, that's why it's so important that we keep abortion decriminalized. It's pregnancy is just too complicated to legislate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. we know during COVID, you know, domestic violence uh, increased even even here in Canada. So uh, these numbers are, are not always going in the right direction. Um, 
we know there is still there's stigma around abortion, there's stigma around uh, sexuality in general, there's stigma around you know reproductive rights. Um, we've you know we just talked about misconceptions around uh, uh, Plan B and and uh, probably around other forms of contraception as well. We know it's not always obvious to rely on sex ed. It's not always obvious to rely on primary physicians, family doctors. So how can we ensure that we are uh, you know, educating our, our population about options available when it comes to reproductive health care and abortion. Is it, and I think for, you know, our listeners who maybe have children, what kind of conversations maybe should they be having at home? Mm-hmm. Whoever wants to go first on this one. <laughs> well, I, I think Rachel got off to a really good start with the idea that, you know, being human is to be sexual. Part of the, part of your existence is, is as, a, as a sexual being. And, you know, you try your best to be safe when you're doing that. As you're doing any other activity in your life, you try and be safe when you're driving. You try and be safe when you're out walking. You try and be safe when you're eating food. You, know, you try and be safe with COVID. And despite all these measures, we do mm-hmm. have to talk about what happens if there's an accident. We do have to talk about that because, you know, most people's intention, if they are on good contraception, is do not get pregnant. So let's keep going on that course. So how do we do that most easily, knowing it's going to be somewhat unpleasant? There is bleeding and cramping with every way that a pregnancy ends, whether it's a miscarriage, an abortion, a child, there's bleeding and cramping. So we've just got to get through that kind of practical bit and go, you know what, your hormones will change and it does amplify your mood and it does amplify how you perceive things. But um, we can get through safely um, to another point in your life where you can recontemplate or maybe reassess what contraception you want or reassess your timing of when, when and if you want to have children. Um, but we need to get through that process safely, effectively, and in a timely way. And how do we do that? And and I think the access to medication abortion is really a good thing because it does allow people to do that quickly. And, you know, I worked with the SOGC on the updated guidelines for medication abortion um, so that we can make sure that there are some t- safe times that people can do this by telemed. They may not need to see a professional. On the other hand, there are some people who would benefit from do, having an ultrasound prior to you know, using that medication or an assessment and or an assessment by a clinician before they mm. do that. You know, so, so I think being transparent about how do we get through the accidents that can happen um, and, and because nobody is planning an accident ever. Yeah. Rachel, I mean, you've been hosting a podcast that talks uh, about abortion based on your own experience. Uh, you know, I was asking you before we we got on this interview, what kind of feedback did you receive, and where you know people listening to the conversations on the podcast, uh, you know, did 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 you feel like you were providing educational information? You know, did did people feel like this was helpful information uh, in a world that's tough to navigate with topics that are still so stigmatized? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing that people would do would be share their abortion stories which with me, which I love so much and means so much to me. It's my favorite type of interaction um, with, with the project. Um, one thing that it's kind of more tangentially related, but a, a big theme when people share their abortion stories, and I myself found this and was one of the reasons why it kind of prompted me to begin writing more about it. Like at the time I thought when I got pregnant and needed an abortion, I had one friend that I knew of who had had an abortion. And then I started talking about my abortion. And then I learned about my mom's. And 
actually way more friends that I was very close to had had abortions and they had just like never come up. Um, So I do think that sharing your stories opens up Mm -hmm. gates of communication that are really meaningful. And a theme that people tend to share with me is it can feel like an isolating experience or an experience that you are going through alone. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, true in in the sense that you know it's your body and only you can make the choice and then actually go through it at the same time one in three people who can get pregnant will access an abortion in their lifetime in canada mm-hmm. you know abortion is a part of the human experience that predates all literate societies it happens more than 70 million times around the world every year um so even though sometimes it feels like a very isolating and like you know stigmatizing experience for some people we're actually in such good company and in a way a part of you know the spiritual part of me is like we're a part of an eternal community Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's something that you know, uh, people, people share with me and it just feels celebratory and Mm. humanizes it and normalizes it. Mm. And, uh, I think we could do with more of that. Yeah. It is sharing the human experience, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's part of our lives. And I think everyone knows someone who has had to have an abortion at some point, Uh, but you're right. It doesn't always come up in conversation. So let's, Mm -hmm. let's destigmatize all of it. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, puts guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. Over the past year, we've seen, you know, Roe versus Wade be challenge and repealed in in the U.S. Uh, It's impacting women in the United States. We're hearing a lot of horror stories in the media. Uh, Different states, you know, have uh, different legislations around it as well. Um, Do you both see it impacting women in Canada? You've mentioned, you know, U.S. sites that come up when somebody does a Google research uh, over here. And could that be a contributing factor to this uh, knowledge gap and to misconceptions around abortion. Uh, maybe Dr. Trouton first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my mind is going in a couple of directions with that question that you asked, partly because, um, you know, it was very reassuring to me that during COVID, when COVID first hit, that abortion was considered an essential part of healthcare. You know, when I was in the hospital providing um, later term abortions, um, you know, at that time and the clinics, all of us were learning very quickly. How do we make sure that we stay open and realize that we were in essential service? And in the hospital for a short time, it was me, abortions and what they call stones and bones. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, broken bones and accidents and, and stones that we couldn't prevent, but um, an abortion and um, cancer. So that was mm. incredible that we were right up there. And so I think as a, as a kind of a fundamental aspect of human existence, abortion has always been with us. And I think that that is incredible. Um, you know, when um, Roe versus Wade hit, I did get a lot of um, 
um, patients coming in and, and being so grateful. The amount of gratitude was outpouring saying, my goodness, I'm so happy to be able to access this service. The service is free. The medication is free. The surgery is free. I don't have to pay anything for it. Um, nobody's questioning my decision. It's just my personal option. And that there's no um, barriers or hoops. I had a lot of people double questioning me where I hadn't before saying, well, how much is this going to cost? So mm. they were still ready to pay for it and figure out how to pay for it. But they were really surprised to find out if it was free. So I think that the reassurance that Canadian um, people had in our healthcare system was up at an all time high and realizing how great it was. Um, mm -hmm. We did expect um, to have perhaps some people coming from the U.S. over to Canada. Um, to yeah. access abortion, but I haven't yet. Ex I have not yet experienced that. Hmm. So, despite the fact of being ready for that, I cannot say that clinically I have noticed that. I think that they've been doing a good job, I suppose, at going from state to state or doing what they can. And I cannot imagine what the challenges are of my clinician colleagues there. Um, you know, I have attended a number of conferences. I used to teach every. Well, I had still teach every year at the National Abortion Federation conference. Um, and uh, meet clinicians from around the world doing this same service. And I find that reassuring from my point of view, knowing that we're all trying our best to uh, take the latest clinical practice guidelines and implement them. Um, but I cannot imagine the huge challenges that they're having. Rachel, as an advocate in this space, what, you know, how do you think the situation in the U.S. might be impacting Canada? Well, I will say... Um, Relatedly, I do not think that it is a coincidence the attacks on bodily autonomy that we're seeing in the U.S. are um, fueling the rise of far-right anti-human rights rhetoric in Canada. And mm -hmm. for me, the place we're seeing this most acutely is this nonsense around parental rights in schools, mm -hmm. particularly in New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. And... Um, it's significant because, first of all, we should be talking about children's human rights, not parental ideology. And our gender expression and our gender identity is an essential part of our bodily autonomy and self-determination. So even though, yes, it's not the same as terminating a pregnancy, these issues are fundamentally and deeply connected. Right. So I see them very much as dog whistles within our culture. And I think we need to be just aware of what those tactics are and develop the um, appropriate arguments to combat them so that mm -hmm. they don't gain more traction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good point. Um, and now to come back to abortion more specifically, um, what are the types of abortion available in Canada today and how can doctors, other uh, practitioners in the healthcare field help individuals make the best decision for themselves? And this one goes to Dr. Troughton. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the two, two main routes to ending a pregnancy are using medication. So a medication abortion and, um, and then the other option is a surgical abortion. The medication or uh, abortion, um, you know, has a few limitations. It's most safely done up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Um, during the COVID pandemic, when we were afraid that some operating rooms might shut, we looked at some guidelines and there is some evidence it can be used up to 11 weeks. But in, generally in Canada, we use the 10-week um, guideline. It can be used 
actually later term pregnancies if necessary, because it, it aids in the ability of the mesoprostol to expel a pregnancy. But generally speaking, most people would be um, best suited to, if they're over 10 weeks, to a surgical abortion. Surgical abortion is just, is not cutting anything, all right? It's just a simple aspiration. And so some clinics have chosen the term aspiration abortion, which means just putting a narrow tube inside the uterus and using gentle suction to remove that either by a handheld syringe or by a machine. It's usually a two or three minute procedure and most often done with some IV sedative so that people are less aware of what's going on at the same time. But it's a very quick and very safe procedure. In most clinics, they do an ultrasound, um, you know, before, possibly afterwards, just to make sure that all the tissue is removed carefully. And the complication rates are much less than 1%. So it's incredibly safe um, to, to do. Both methods are very safe. The medication abortion is also the complication rate is, you know, less than 1%. Um, you know, but there is a, probably a 2 or 3% chance of retained tissue, possibly needing some additional medications or possibly needing um, a surgical intervention. Mm-hmm. And you've brought up, you know, the, the major difference uh, with plan B and uh, where timing uh, needs needs to be uh, carefully respected before ovulation. So mm-hmm. that would be when, when that method is effective. Yeah. Um, there's still issues around access to abortion care. You know, we've talked about the stigma, the knowledge gap. Um, what are specific difficulties that some communities in Canada uh, might be facing when it comes to accessing safe abortions? Mm-hmm. We know mm-hmm. it's not one size fits all uh, no. across provinces, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, because there's a little bit of uncertainty for some people as to when their last menstrual period might have been, it's really prudent to do an ultrasound to make sure. And in Rachel's case, for example, you know, when someone gets pregnant with an IUD, we do worry about the risk of an ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy that's located outside of the uterus. So we want to make sure that that's not happening. And in some communities, it's actually really hard to get an ultrasound in a timely way. So despite that risk of someone getting pregnant with an IUD and needing to have an ultrasound, it's sometimes hard for the communities to do. So sometimes people are driving some distance mm-hmm. to do it, or sometimes they're just delaying care. The other challenge is sometimes um, there may not be a local pharmacy who's willing to stock the mifepristone and the mesoprostol, the, the tablets that are used for the medication abortion. And in some communities, there might not be access to um, a procedural suite or an operating room to do that surgical abortion. They may only have access, for example, once a month, or once every two weeks, um, I used to fly out to New Brunswick and we only had access once a, once a week. So, you know, mm. there can be um, just limitations based on what kind of access you can get, but it would be the same for any other kind of uh, very frequently done procedure. Colonoscopy, for example, is as frequent right. um, and, you know, you can't get that every day in every community. Um, but, um, you know, abortion and, um, and aspiration abortion certainly is the most common procedure that um, a, a female body will have. And um, mm-hmm. so it's important that it's accessible, but unfortunately, there are a few delays. And those delays, as Rachel pointed out very well earlier, can lead to time off work, illness, sickness, lack of concentration, feeling unwell, needing to be hospitalized because your vomiting and nausea is so terrible. You know, there are definite problems with a delay in access to care, even just a couple of weeks. Hmm. Rachel, any additional comments? I'll say from, you know, uh, what I'm also hearing from people within the reproductive justice community across Canada in terms of um, 
improving our training for healthcare providers. You know, not all women could get pregnant and not all pregnant people are women. So making sure that our care is inclusive, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, particularly for trans and non-binary people, they're already often facing barriers to healthcare just in general. Um, and having sometimes even being denied the care itself. Mm -hmm. So in order to, you know, bigger than abortion to create a healthcare system that really works for everyone, uh, from my understanding, from a public health perspective, you want to design and develop your services so that you are addressing the needs of the marginalized communities, because then you can guarantee that everyone is going to be able to find pathways to care and get the care that they need. And we know that a healthy population is a healthy population on more than just our bodies. (laughs) So that's another kind of component uh, that I think we should be increasing our consciousness consciousness about. Mm, that's a very good point. And um, this, you know, brings me uh, to ask you, I think, you know, for most uh, pregnant people who are interested or considering uh, an abortion, the first call will be their family doctor or primary physician. What if that person and you know, Rachel, you describe your own personal experience. What if that person is not supportive, not providing the uh, appropriate information, not offering solutions? What would be the next step? What are alternative options uh, in those situations? Well, I, I would say that some people do try immediately with their family physician or their nurse practitioner, their primary care provider to get access. But sometimes there's a delay in getting access yeah. to that person. And I realize the anxiety and frustration with thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm pregnant and I really don't want to be pregnant leads people to go into immediate Google searching and, and searching there. Pretty well, all of the clinics um, that I'm aware of across the country, and I've worked in probably, I think, five different jurisdictions, um, accept self-referral. So that is a really positive thing that people should know that they do not need a referral to go to most abortion clinics in Canada. You can just do a self-referral and it's it's designed specifically and intentionally because of that, because we don't want to delay in care. Um, So people can just phone, make their own appointment and their own arrangements and their, their primary care provider may never know that they went there. So, um, however, I mean, I do encourage people if they do have a family, uh, a family doctor or a primary care provider to touch base with that person, because really, I think the trust that you had developed with your healthcare person really helps you in just sort of a longitudinal way throughout your life, you know, whereas in the future, you may consider that you want to get pregnant and some issues may come up or what, whatnot, or you might want to have a longer discussion or more fulsome discussion about contraception with your primary care provider. It's helpful for them to know what you've been through. Um, so that they can care for you better. Um, you know, I know that many people have a good and trusting relationship with their primary care provider and others do not. But for those that do, I think I would encourage, um, as Rachel said, with, with your friends and colleagues to share your abortion story, but not only share it with your colleagues and friends, but also with your primary care provider if you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Rachel, any additional comments? Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've, it was a revelation to me when I needed an abortion that I could just like call a clinic and self-refer myself. So I think that's a lesser known knowledge within um, the population. So yeah, just spread, spread the word wide and far. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, it's amazing that we have that option and and good to share the knowledge uh, on that one, as you're saying. Um, I want to talk about the notion of choice. Um, a, a lot of the guests on this show are entrepreneurs and uh, the topic of motherhood or choices around whether to have a, a family or not comes up because it overlaps with our professional lives. It overlaps with every aspect of our lives, really. Um, and I want to ask you about the importance of choice when it comes to abortion and what does that mean to each of you? Mm-hmm. Rachel, maybe we'll go with you first. Yes. I mean, I'm currently living right in the middle of this question. I'm 35. I want children. My partner and I can't afford to do it yet. So, you know, I'm my abortion absolutely was a choice and I'm grateful to have had it, but I'm speaking from my particular position where I'm at in my life and what I want with my life. My choice is greatly impacted and arguably presently diminished by the unaffordable costs of housing, mm-hmm. by precarious access to affordable childcare, you know, more structural issues, not even my own ability to access that child care, but these infrastructures of care that we're creating in society, the older I get before mm-hmm. I have my children, the older my parents get. Mm-hmm. So I am looking at a potential future where I, where I will have an infant and 80-year-old parents. So I'm right. caregiving on both sides of the life continuum and trying to not completely derail my career. Mm-hmm. Plus, we're dealing with stagnant wages. I'm a freelancer. I don't have maternity top-ups. So I'm looking at half of my income. It also means I'm dependent on my partner for his health benefits. There are so many structural issues. And I'm coming from a place of like, I'm a cis, het, white woman in an urban center. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of privileges in my particular constellation. And yet it is, parenting is still punishing. Mm. And it shouldn't be like that. You're human. You have the human right. Reproductive justice is the right to have children, not have children and parent your children in safe and sustainable communities. Mm -hmm. So I'm so grateful. I've been able to access my right to not have a child when I did not plan and was not ready to have a child. I do not feel like my right to have a child is being equally supported currently in the society that we're living in. Mm. No, you bring up some some very valid and unfortunate arguments, and I think uh, a lot of people find themselves in that situation. Dr. Troughton, you're 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 meeting a lot of uh, individuals who are making difficult choices uh, on on a daily basis. What does that notion of choice represent for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I was going to take you back a little bit to the 90s, only because it's relevant to me in that um, at that time, there was a lot of international meetings on the right to have an abortion. And that is when the UN decision came out and the World Health Organization adopted it, saying that women need to be able to decide the number and spacing of their children. And to be in a global environment when I was in Beijing and then in um, in Cairo and talking to women from around the world who had not had that right and who demanded that right because they needed to be able to look after their family, their community, their extended family. And women were at this focal point of realizing that in many communities around the world, they're coordinating so many things, as Rachel said, kind of on a, you know, working at both generations, but women are left with that responsibility for child raising, for caring for the home, for caring for the community. 
And and so um, I was so moved by that that I thought this has got to be a right, and this is relevant not only to people in Canada, but to people, but people in poor Indigenous communities in um, you know the backwoods of Mexico or Chile or Nicaragua. And it is so important that um, that people do have that right and. It's entrenched in the World Health Organization. I'm so happy that we at least have a safe abortion day um, to consider that and reflect on that at the privilege that we have in Canada, but that it has a huge impact. And so um, I do see a number of people who have recently immigrated to Canada. I'm now located in Toronto, where I, of course, see a lot of new recent immigrants. And I'm so touched by recognizing the barriers that they have had to access abortion care in their first, second, third, fourth, or fifth language. So how they navigate Mm. to make the self-referral is incredible. And my hat goes off to those people who somehow managed to work through it. And also that that the um, they recognize the need to they ha- that they have as new immigrants to Canada to manage the number and spacing of their kids is so important because they're re re-cha- they're changing their job they're changing their daycare they're um, retooling their career then it might have been professionals in in the country where they are from and now they've got to retool entirely so the barriers are huge and I'm so committed to make sure make making sure that this is a safe option and continues to be a safe option, um, that, that you just can't give up. You can't give up. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you for that. And I think those examples are, are very important to highlight. Um, I think, you know, coming back on, on the notion of stigma and Rachel, you talked about, you know, those personal choices you have to make and uh, systemic issues at play uh, when it comes to making the decision to be a parent or not. Um, and I think many, you know, many people associate having an abortion with that lack of interest in building a family or becoming a parent. But we know that's not always the case, as, as you know, you just explained with, uh, with your own lived experience. Um, how can we normalize that topic of abortion, linking it to a notion that, you know, ties to healthcare and distance it from the stigma around not wanting to be a parent? Yeah, I think I would kind of echo my my last response. You know, the more we're able to um, expand the conversation about abortion and reproductive choice and our reproductive lives to all of the components of society that all of us interact with, housing, work, you know, the care economy, all of it, I think that that takes us away from the traditional moral binary of like, you know, is it good? Is it bad? It doesn't matter. It just is. And it's a part of life. And let's, the more we can understand that all of our issues and the things that impact our lives are deeply interconnected, we'll also realize that we're deeply interconnected and in the same struggles and trying to create hopefully a world that's more livable and that is creating a society where people are taken care of, like with an ethic of care. The one thing I'll add, which I didn't get to work into the previous answer is, you know, I still want children. I also have the eco anxiety of like, what planet are they inheriting? Yeah. And, um, You know, I'm currently based in Ontario and environmental justice and reproductive justice are also deeply intertwined. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, 
it's also the reality in Canada is communities who are more likely to be impacted by environmental justice or particularly Indigenous communities. I was reading earlier this year in the Chemical Valley, um, the First First Nations, their experience like a 39% rate of miscarriage, which is astronomical compared to the rest of the population. Mm. So they're, again, all of these issues are indivisible and, and you know, by addressing them, we're addressing the complexity of, you know, co-creating this world together. Absolutely. And that's, it's always fascinating talking about, you know, reproductive rights because it intersects with, you know, with trans rights, with LGBTQ2S plus rights, with uh, environmental justice, as you just said, uh, which is why this conversation is so important. Dr. Trotten, anything to add? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I've just maybe take a slightly different spin on um, looking at. I think that the planning of one's goals in one's life is an important discussion that needs to continue to happen. You know, and and so if we refocus on the common pathway, what is the pathway forward? What goals do you want in your life? What are the the, uh, career objectives you want to have? Are there any family objectives you want to have? What is important to you in life? And I find that turning the conversation to that is somewhat helpful because it's like, let's look Mm -hmm. at the big picture. Uh, And I say that because it's coming up also with assisted dying. Now, interestingly, the possibility of having an assisted death came to Canada the same year that we got mifepristone. So isn't that Mm -hmm. interesting, right? Wow. Only because it, it has opened up the choice of Canadians to think about what their future is, right? And so Mm -hmm. um, I think that we have more options in terms of, reproductive health, um, which is important because I think it, it aligns that conversation of what are your goals in life, earlier in life during your reproductive part of your life. But then it's turned toward the end as well in what are your choices and what are your options and what do you want to do at the end of your life? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those having those complementary discussions, as long as it doesn't interfere with anyone else's safety and freedom, um, yeah. Does it really matter? And and so I think that we are going to get having more and more as as the future goes forward, more and more conversations about quality of life, type of life, um, and opportunities in life, and challenges in life. And and I think those are the big fundamental questions that I think we as healthcare providers mm-hmm. would like to be focusing on more with our patients. Um, and so I think think the um, there's a complementarity there as well. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. And it it comes back to that notion of choice, uh, you know, making choices around our, our own life and our quality of life, which every human should have a right to. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to end on a positive note. I mean, we, we did highlight a lot of positive. And uh, as you said, Dr. Tratton, we're celebrating uh, International Safe Abortion uh, Day uh, with, with this conversation today. Um, what would be your wish for women and people with a, a uterus everywhere? Um, this can be, you know, linked to reproductive rights, or it could be something uh, completely unrelated. Uh, Rachel, let's go with you first. I think currently I'll go back to my previous answer, which is realizing universal contraception in Canada. I think in terms of abortion and in the in honor of International Safe Abortion Day. When Roe fell last year, I think the population became more aware of how access is an issue. And instead of, you know, panicking and, 
creating chaos around that. I think it's important that we focus on how do we uphold the access that we have and expand it and push it forward. And right now, I think that universal contraception would be a huge part of that momentum. So that's what I wish for us. I love that. Thank you. Dr. Trappen? <laughs> I would echo that. I think it's so incredible. And in fact, there is a movement going toward the Canadian Parliament um, this month, um, which is a, a huge petition signed by people right across Canada asking for free contraception in every other province and jurisdiction in Canada, the territories as well. Um, so I think that that's absolutely fundamental. And the second part is that I wish for a universal training for all healthcare providers in abortion services. Um, I think that that would be fantastic. Yeah, as equally important for sure. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, thank you for sharing these insights. Rachel, thank you for talking about your own personal journey. Um, I think this was really in informative um, and such an important time to be highlighting uh, with International Safe Abortion Day this week. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. And I hope those wishes come true in the near future. Here, here. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.